the one thing that a kid who's too young to get a real job uh, could do would be catch chickens. It was a miserable, horrible job. You go out at a chicken house at about 10 o'clock at night, work most all night long, catching chickens and putting them in these crates that then go off to the slaughterhouse. And I, I can't even tell you how bad it smells in August when it's, you know, 95 degrees at night and you're out there catching chickens. And all I could think of was, what do I have to do so I don't have to do this for the rest of my life? In a few minutes, I'm going to be speaking with Governor Mike Huckabee. But first, almost overnight this year, financial dreams turned into financial nightmares. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit the U.S., the economy forever changed. Thousands of businesses were forced to shut their doors and millions filed for unemployment. Americans from all walks of life helplessly watched as life as we knew it came to a screeching halt. But if there's one piece of advice I can give you folks, it's this. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give up. As a nation, we face bigger obstacles. Not only do we overcome them, but we also thrive. And we're going to thrive again because America is the richest, most powerful, most tolerant, and freest nation ever to exist on Earth. Today, the average American has a standard of living that is the envy of the world, a standard of living that our parents and certainly our grandparents would have just dreamed of. For example, in 1920, around the time my grandparents were married, only 1% of U.S. homes had electricity and indoor plumbing, just one out of 100. In 1940, when my parents were born, more than half the houses in this country didn't have hot water, a bathtub, or a shower. And only one out of three homes had indoor toilets. In the 1950s, air conditioning window units were invented. This was the first time homeowners had access to in-house cooling, a luxury that the richest kings who ever lived didn't have. Can you imagine, especially if you live in the southern United States, what life would be like without cool breezes blowing from an air conditioner? Well, my guest today, Governor Mike Huckabee, surely does. He grew up in a working-class family in Hope, Arkansas in the 1950s. Governor Huckabee's dad told him, son, don't look very far up the family tree. There's stuff up there you shouldn't see. He was the first male of his family lineage to graduate high school. The story of how he went from poverty to the governor's mansion will make you say only in America. How did the Huckabee clan, and when did the Huckabee clan get to Hope, Arkansas, population <laughs> 8,000 people? Well, I, I grew up thinking that my family's roots were in Ireland, but I found out they were actually English uh, from a little place outside of Liverpool, England. And the story that we best can tell is that they were thrown out of the debtor's prisons of England, <laughs> dropped off on the shores of Georgia to fend for themselves. And so I tell people, you know, I don't come from a long line of blue bloods. We were not part of the pilgrims. Uh, you know, we were not the aristocrats. We were the ones that they didn't want anymore. And that's why the, the Klan was so hardy and they kind of scattered all over the place. Um, a group of my family ended up in uh, South Arkansas around the late 1700s and have been there ever since. My dad used to tell me, he said, son, don't look very far up your family tree because there's some stuff up there you don't need to see. <laughs> of course, I found out the old man was right. Um, I, I think it's, to me, a, you know, a fascinating story. My family were just hardworking people. That's all they knew. 
because of uh, the hard scrabble life they lived, most of them never had much of an education. Uh, I am the first male, Charles, in my entire family lineage that ever graduated from high school. My father, grandfather, great-grandfather, keep going up the family ladder, not a single male upstream for me ever finished high school. So for me to just finish high school was, uh, you know, breaking the sound barrier, to go on to college and to become governor of a state and run for president. I mean, it's only in America does something like this happen. It's, It's truly remarkable. Your folks, the, the Huckabees were always working class people. You weren't the political yeah. elite. You weren't involved in the state government. You weren't involved in any of that. No, in fact, uh, you know, I used to joke that nobody really cared whether my father put out a yard sign. He didn't have any influence. He was a fireman and he worked one day on, one day off. And on the days off, he worked as a mechanic in a generator shop, rebuilding car generators when they had those things. Now they have alternators. But uh, you know, all he ever knew his whole life was standing on concrete floors, getting his hands dirty, lifting heavy things, um, you know, just working to pay the rent on a little orange brick shotgun rent house that we lived in on Second Street in Hope, Arkansas. You, you, didn't, even up, own your, you didn't even own your house? Oh, no, of course not. We We rented the house I lived in. My parents eventually bought it, but that was, I think, I was maybe a senior in high school when they finally, you know, gathered up enough money to buy the house that I grew up in. Um, But it was a rent house and it was just a tiny little rent house that we lived in and uh, nothing, you know, extraordinary about it. When people look at pictures of it, they say, oh, my gosh, you really did live in poverty. I did. But I didn't I didn't complain about it. And I didn't even grow up, I, I think, realizing how poor we were. Number one, a lot of other people were in the same boat. And number two, I didn't feel a victim. Uh, my parents would never have allowed me that. They, they were not whiners. They didn't sit around and say, oh, look at how much those people have. It's not fair. They never, they wouldn't allow me to think that. What they kept telling me was, look, um, we may not have a lot, but what we have, we've worked hard for. And if you want to live a better life, get a good education, work hard and treat people right. That's what they drilled into me. They wanted for my sister and me to have a better life and certainly a better education than they had. My dad would often say, uh, you know, I I quit school because I didn't have much of a choice, had to get to work and help the family. My mother was the oldest of seven kids. Uh, You know, this, this may blow you away, Charles, but my mother grew up in a house that didn't even have floors, just dirt. No electricity, no running water. Uh, I mean, you don't get much poorer than that. And so that's her legacy. And as the oldest of seven, she had to work to help take care of the other six. So uh, those are my roots. And I'm not ashamed of them. I'm grateful for them because what was instilled in me was a sense of hard work, uh, individualism, um, really a positive outlook to say, Okay, I had nothing to do with where I started. But in America, I don't have to stop where I was started. I I can look beyond it. And that's, to me, the magic of this great country. And I don't care what your politics are, left, right, center. I I like to look at life vertically rather than horizontally. And I think too many people see everything left, right, liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican. And those are all fine approaches on the spectrum. 
But the ultimate way we ought to look at life is vertically. Are we going up? Are we going down? Are we getting better? Or are we getting worse? And how do we get better? What makes things better? So I, I was very fortunate that my parents were not educated in a formal sense. Um, but boy, they had a lot of just what I call street smarts. You know, they had to, to survive. And they were resourceful and they were sacrificial. They, uh, they wanted better for me. They were devoted to my sister and me. We had food on the table. Uh, I thought we had the kind of food we had because we were lucky. I found out later in life it was because we were poor. Uh, you know, I thought having macaroni and cheese and macaroni and tomato and uh, peas and cornbread were, man, we've got to be the luckiest people <laughs> on the whoop planet. We Look what we're, and it was not till later I realized that that was the food we could afford. But again, I, I, I visit with you today as one of the most grateful people on God's green earth because I know where I came from, and I know, but by the grace of God and some hard work and lucky breaks, I'd still be catching chickens like I used to do as a little kid. And I'm going to tell you, that was a great motivator for me, because as a kid, when, uh, you know, I'm seven, eight, nine years old, if I wanted something, I had to go work for it. There was no no allowance, no, here's some money, go do what you want. I uh, picked up Coke bottles in my neighborhood and a little red wagon. I sold cards door to door. Um, but the, the one thing that a kid who's too young to get a real job, uh, could do would be catch chickens. It was a miserable, horrible job. You go out at a chicken house at about 10 o'clock at night, work most all night long, catching chickens and putting them in these crates that then go off to the slaughterhouse. And I, I can't even tell you how bad it smells in August when it's, you know, 95 degrees at night and you're out there catching chickens. And all I could think of was, what do I have to do so I don't have to do this for the rest of my life? Yes, you had and I drive. can remember, <laughs> yeah, you had, get an you education. So you saw something that many people just don't get, at, that the key to get out of that life is not to complain about it, not to yeah. march in the streets, not to terrorize people. Basically, our educational system is the key to get out of there. Yeah. Learn something. And and the other thing my parents always drilled into me, they, they made it clear, look, we can't give you any breaks. Our last name will not open a door for you. And we can't go and grease somebody's palm and make sure they give you a job. It won't work like that. So you're, you may have to work harder than the next guy. But if you work harder, people will notice and it'll pay off. So I was that guy that would go to work early. I'd stay late. I'd be the first one there, the last one to leave. And whatever I was asked to do, I would do more than that. And if there was the task finished, I didn't sit around and just say, okay, I'm, I'm done. I'll just clock in for the rest of my shift. Whatever it was, I'd find something else to do. And boy, they were right. That's why I say my parents, they may not have had uh, formal education, but they were really smart when it came to uh, how, how to get ahead in life. Yeah, so, got it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just say, Charles, I'm not a guy sitting around saying, oh, gee, uh, my life is so tough. I look at it and say, I was so blessed that I learned how to work hard. And when I did get to go to college, which I paid for myself because I had to, I worked 40 hours a week uh, working as a disc jockey at a radio station, which I started when I was 14 and worked all the way through junior high, high school, college and grad school doing radio. But 
you know, I was working 40 hours a week, uh, taking 19 hours a semester. I got through college in two years and three months, graduated magna cum laude. And when people say, how did you do that? I said, I didn't have an option. I, I couldn't afford four years of this. Or Philly, so was not a, Philly was not yeah. an option. You weren't going to go back to catching chickens. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. So, so when, I, I know like when I was a kid, when I was in eighth grade, in fact, there was a school band and you had to pay for the instruments. And we didn't, yeah. my father's a warehouse manager growing up in the 70s with hyperinflation. Yeah. It was hyper. It was inflation, unemployment. It was really terrible times. I yeah. do remember uh, under, um, after Nixon through Carter, it was just sad. It was just sad, really. Mm. And uh, my father said, you know, you really want to do this? You want to play the trumpet? And, uh, and he took whatever little money it was, and we rented a trumpet. You know, that was, that, and looking back now as a father and grandfather, that was a big deal. That wasn't, yeah. you know, and I know you play the guitar. You're a bass guitar player. How did, you, how did your parents afford a, a, a guitar for you? Well, that's one of the great stories of my life in that uh, when the Beatles came out in 1964 on Ed Sullivan, I knew then my ambition. I wanted to be the fifth Beatle. I was going to make it, you know. And so I was 11 years old, and I started asking. Well, at that time, I was eight years old, and, and I asked for electric guitar for Christmas. They said, we can't afford that. And truly, truly they couldn't. And so they'd say, what else you want? I'd give them the what else, and that's what I'd get for Christmas. Next year, same thing. Next year, same thing. The third year, what do you want for Christmas? I want an electric guitar. Uh, we can't afford that. What else? I said, nothing else. That's it. I want an electric guitar. I want nothing. Charles, I didn't realize till I was an adult how close I was to getting nothing. But here's the real story. My parents ordered from the JCPenney catalog uh, an electric guitar kit with the little amplifier and everything that goes with it, $99. It took them a year to pay for it. And they didn't do Christmas for themselves so they could every month put a little more on it until they could pay the $99. Like I said, it took them over a year. When did you find that out? How many years later did you find that out? Oh, I was probably headed to college, maybe in college before I ever knew that. I just knew that I finally got that guitar and I played that thing till my fingers nearly bled. It changed my life. And it wasn't because I was a great musician, but I grew up very shy and bashful, which will be a surprise to people who know me now. But I really was. And part of that was because I was poor. I just didn't feel that I was as good as maybe other kids. And I didn't belong in certain places. It wasn't that I didn't think I could do better. I, I knew I could but I never felt I knew how to act in places and with people that were socially connected. I, you know, I just afraid of people. You felt intimidated, so, intimidated, really. Yeah. And yet getting the guitar meant that if I wanted to play and be in a band, I was going to have to play in front of people. And that started giving me a level mm. of confidence. So music changed my life. And one of the things that I've spent a lot of my adult life doing um, and even as governor, we created the program. And I loved what you're talking about your, your trumpet because we created the program called Play It Again, Arkansas. We had people donate musical instruments they weren't using anymore. Maybe they were under a bed or in a closet and donate them. We got them refurbished and we gave them to band directors all over the state to give them wow. to kids whose parents couldn't afford the purchase or rental of a band instrument, but who wanted to play. And my commitment was any kid who wants to play music ought to be able to. 
And if a kid doesn't have something positive in his hands, like a musical instrument, a guitar, a trumpet, drumsticks, he might find a knife or a gun. Far better to put music in his hands. And his parents will know where he is because they can hear him. And so it became, and it still remains to be, a passion of mine. Beautiful. And so I work with an a organization now uh, to try to raise money to get musical instruments in the hands of kids whose parents can't afford them. What's, give, me, give, me and, that orga- give me that organization again, Governor. I want, to, I want to put it down below. Yeah, it's the NAM Foundation, National Association of Music Merchants. And uh, I'm also working with a, a local group uh, in Hendersonville, Tennessee, and then I got appointed by the president to be on the Kennedy Center board. And so I'm on that board. And one of my goals with Kennedy Center is to get them to nationalize uh, a massive instrument in the hands of, of kids program. So I, I hope to be able to do that as part of my tenure there. Well, outstanding. Because, you know, when you, you, first of all, it creates discipline. You have to practice. You have to set aside time. There's responsibility. Uh, you have to play in a band. You have to you have make commitments. You know, it's a whole daisy chain event. And you give kids that responsibility at the beginning, like you, it would change yeah. your life. It was a, look, I remember so over 50 years ago how, how that trumpet, having that in my hands, I thought I was Louis Armstrong. It didn't sound anywhere near <laughs> it, but just that empowering feeling, you know, yeah. I have an instrument and I have to practice. It's, it's just a great feeling. Wow. So, so, mm-hmm. you get, so you get married also at a young age, right? 18 or so? You were still in yeah. college? Yeah, high school uh, sweetheart. my wife and I, we, we married after our first year of college. We were both 18, just a few months shy of our 19th birthdays. And, you, you know, I know it sounds in this day and time absurd, but we've been married 46 uh, and a half. It'll be 47 years next May. So I, it's worked out somehow, despite all of the uh, predictions that it wouldn't. Uh, I think bo- for both of us, both of us had to mature much earlier than a lot of our peers. Um, I had to work. My wife was one of five children raised by a single mom. She too had to work. Uh, She did not grow up with uh, privileges and and all the material things. And, you know, we had an uncle who came to live with us uh, when I was uh, 13. He had cancer. He was dying. He never had married, had no children. We were basically as close a family as he had. So uh, having to be a caretaker at a teenage years, because my parents were both working, and so my sister and I had to pick up a lot of the slack. Bottom line is, I did a lot of growing up when I was much younger because I didn't have a choice. And I think by the time I was 18, um, I'd been through some stuff. And as a result, it didn't seem so abnormal for me to say it's time to Act like an adult, get married, start a family. You know, that that's kind of what I thought. And then so you get married to your beautiful sweetheart, 18 years old, and then she gets sick two years later? Yeah, in fact, uh, not quite, uh, barely a year later, uh, she had back trouble. She decided to withdraw from college and help me so I could get through on my accelerated pace. And, uh, you know, I was working and she was working as a dental assistant. She started having some back trouble that we assumed was standing over the dental chair. And several months of various doctors who said it was everything from a, you know, stress and strain and, uh, you know, muscular problem. Finally, a doctor said it's a slip disc, textbook case. They'd operate on it. 
So they did a myelogram, which is a test injecting dye into the spine to see where the disc is. Now we were 19 at this time, um, about to turn 20. And the doctor told my wife that, uh, well, told me and her, uh, you don't have a disc problem. And he said, I've called in a neurosurgeon. He'll explain. Well, that was bizarre, oh, but I knew it was bad news. And he came in, the neurosurgeon did that night and said, your wife has a tumor in her spinal canal. It's blocking the spinal cord. That's what's oh my the problem. Gosh. Oh my goodness. And he said, we're not sure it's operable because it's inside the canal of the spine. And if we can get to it, we'll probably sever her spinal cord in order to remove the tumor. That may be the only way to save her life. And he said, so if that happens, she'll be paraplegic for the rest of her life. And that was the good news. That was like, but we have real hope here. We might can get you through this and you'll only be paraplegic and not die. So that was pretty stunning to be 20 years old, trying to go through college and suddenly deal with this. Um, But once again, Charles, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's the tough moments of life that test you, try you, and even make you into a person of character and into a person of strength. Um, no rope is tested by leaving it slack. You test it by pulling it as hard as you can. And I think sometimes in life, what, what makes us realize what strength is, is when we're pulled really hard. And that's when we know. But anyway, uh, they did the surgery. Um, quite remarkably, and I think uh, in answer to a lot of prayer, uh, the tumor came out more easily than the doctor had expected. They did not sever her spinal cord, but of course they obviously bruised it pretty badly. But she learned to walk again, uh, had to go through six weeks of five-day-a-week radiation therapy for which we had to drive 75 miles each way, 150-mile round trip every day, and, and you're uh, going and you're going to school during this time? Yeah, I we get up at 4:30 in the morning, we drive to Little Rock at 7 o'clock in the morning, she'd do the radiation, we drive back, I'd get her back in a hospital bed that we had set up in our little $40 a month rent uh apartment that we had. How how are we, we putting food on the table? When we where was well, the money Well, I was still from? working and I so would you, work you, at the radio working, station. Once again, you were working at the radio station, you were caring yeah. for your your wife in recovery here and you're going to school. Going to school. And I'd go to class, I'd come back and check on her at lunch, I'd go back to class, I'd go to work, get off at 11.30, midnight, we'd start it all over again. Wow. Uh, look, it's, it wasn't the easiest time of my life, but it prepared me for what would later be some of the harder times of my life. And that's, that's the thing that I, I came to realize is that I could sit around and say, well, why me? Why wasn't it someone else? I didn't have time for that. And it wasn't going to make anything better. So I, by the grace of God, and I really believe that more than anything, uh, it was our faith that got us through this. We knew that there, um, that there are bigger things in life than even our lives. That that ultimately, I can't control the circumstances that I live with, but I can control my reaction to them, and that was a real turning point for me and a lesson learned. Um, so, so, so coming into this challenge, you and Janet, right? Janet, you, guys, uh-huh. you both were people of faith. Yep. And where did you Very get that strong. from? Where did you get that basis from? Were you your parents? Your your or you found that on your own? I mean, 
My parents certainly were people who believed in God. I think my faith came more from what was uh, a very important part of the culture in the late 60s, the Jesus movement. And that's kind of what attracted me as a young person, the contemporary music that, that was speaking to me musically. Um, but the message spoke to me uh, spiritually and more uh, profoundly. My wife grew up in a much more church-oriented home, but faith was a very integral part of our teenage years and our in our lives and has been throughout our marriage. It's so interesting because during that time period, everyone was going the other way. Yeah. You know, everyone was dropping out of faith and there was doubt and there was religion is dead. Let's, you know, move on from oh, that. Yeah. And you found your strength there and that pulled you right through. Mm -hmm. Wow. Absolutely. That, that, that is just, so, and that's, is, is that, was it when you were in college, you said you wanted to be a Baptist minister or that was afterwards or that was your plan? That was your dream? No, it really wasn't. Uh, my career path, I thought was going to be broadcasting because I'd started in radio at age 14. And I, I even thought that I would go into Christian broadcasting, you know, do something in radio and television, but in the faith world. And I, I had no intentions of being a pastor. That really wasn't my career goal at all. And I landed a job with a Christian organization in Texas. I was director of communications. I ran an ad agency for a while that mostly handled clients who were mega churches or large Christian organizations. And I became the head of that agency. We did full service, uh, print ads, billboards, radio, television, uh, copy, everything. And I thought, this is this is great. You know, this is a career path for me. And eventually I wanted to run for office. I thought I'll go into advertising and uh, communications. Uh, I ghost wrote some books for people. But when you say uh, you know, office, you mean, you mean political office or office yeah. within? No. So outside office. of the church. Right. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I saw my career path as being advertising and communications and eventually then, you know, I'd save enough money and I'd run for Congress or do something like that. So um, then it was a, a detour for me to end up in the pastorate. A church asked me to come and speak for them just, to, you know, as a guest speaker. I did. They asked me to become their interim pastor while they were looking for someone to come and be their pastor. I said, oh, I can do that. And I still was running my communications business. And then uh, they told me they wanted me to be their permanent pastor. And I said, well, no, I don't want to, <laughs> that's not what I want to do. Well, you, you, you really should pray about that because we're convinced you're the person who needs to be here. And to condense the story, that's what happened. I ended up being there six years, started a locally uh, run Christian television channel, actually a community television channel from nothing and then another church in Texarkana, Arkansas, asked me to come and be their pastor. And I was there for almost six years. So that period of 12 years, I call it my uh, extended graduate school. Uh, great time of my life to teach me really about humanity in a way nothing else would. And the, the nutshell of it is this, Charles, that a pastor sees every social pathology that exists in our culture. You see people at their best and their worst, at the beginning of life, at the end of life, and everything in between. You're the one that the 14-year-old girl comes and says she's pregnant before she tells her parents. Right, right. You're the one that's holding the hand of an elderly 80-year-old uh, in ICU as they slip away into eternity. 
so you see life in ways no one else does. And I look back and realize that was the proving ground and, and really the training ground for me to later run for office. Because when I did, uh, my perspective about what the real problems of human beings are, what really is affecting our culture and our society was very different than it would have been had I never had those what I call real life human experiences with uh, with people at their worst and at their best moments. Yeah, clergy really, you know, a friend of mine who was a rabbi who passed away several years ago said, if it was up to him, every clergyman should be a they have a master's in social work because hmm. being in the clergy is basically you're a social worker. You're helping yeah. the people when they're at their worst and best and you have to know how to deal with it. And you're probably a young guy, probably in your 20s doing this. Yeah, I was. Right. And, and up until I was like 35. So uh, it, it taught me a lot, though, about everything. You know, I'd grown up in poverty, but then dealing with it from a public policy perspective. You know, when you're carrying groceries into a home, and when you bring them in there and that's the only food that's in that house is what you just brought them. When somebody talks about food stamps and they speak dismissively of it, you know, I say, whoa, 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 whoa. You don't under, you don't know what you're talking about. Right. Maybe there are people who cheat. Certainly there are. But you need to know that there are people who are absolutely hungry tonight. There are kids in homes and they come home from school. They had a school lunch. And they won't eat again until they get back to school because there is nothing in their house unless some guy like me brings a bag of groceries and puts it in their home because there's nothing else there. Yeah, and a wanna... lot of Americans do not understand that that's real. Yeah, you know, um, on a personal point, when I was growing up and we went to a private school and my parents were on scholarship, not, not mm -hmm. academic, it was totally financial. And yeah. it was really tough. They had to go, be, my father had to go before his peers, guys who had money, who were on the board. He questioned what type of car do you have. It was, it was, took away every piece of dignity uh, that he had. And they had to work also bingo. The school had a bingo parlor in the evenings that those on scholarship had to work it off. So I remember my father coming home, yeah. long day work, uh, gobbling down dinner, then going till 11 o'clock at night to do this bingo. Mm -hmm. uh, so I said to myself, I, I knew I was going to be successful. I, I, I like you, I had no choice. <laughs> there was, yeah. It was either sink or swim, and I wasn't, I wasn't sinking. Yeah. And I eventually became treasurer of that school, and we revamped the scholarship committee. I put guys on the scholarship committee who weren't wealthy, who knew what it was mm -hmm. to be support. So when you sit there, when you say you have no money in your pocket and you're a rich guy, that means you have nothing in your pocket now. When a poor yeah. person says, I have nothing, it means they have nothing. Nothing. And yeah. the, the whole mood changed because now when you saw that poor person, it didn't have to sit there and say, did you do this? All right, look, 2% of the people always try to get by, but you don't destroy the 98% for the 2%. I'd rather let those 2% get the free ride. Just don't destroy these people. Yeah. I, I think what you just said is so very powerful. And a lot of people, who they've only grown up in affluence. They have no idea that there are people who will go into the store and walk down the aisles and they'll look at an item and they'll check the price and they'll put it back because they just, they know they can't afford it. Or, you know, they, they deep down know that the next dental appointment wipes away their savings. They that, have that's nothing. What we, that's what I used to say. We say, look, they may have to make a decision. Go to the orthodontist for their kids or pay this yeah. month's tuition. 
they're not saying we're going to our second home or we're going on vacation. You just don't yeah. get that. It, it's, right. it's, it's really that, you know, if you grow up with too much or with you, when you grow up sufficient, when you don't have that hunger, it's unfortunate. Sometimes you just, you'll never get that flavor. You'll never understand what it is. I remember my father in the morning before I used to go to school and he would be praying in the, in the living room where he couldn't talk at this point uh, because he was praying. And I said, Dad, I need a dollar for this. And he'd open up his wallet, literally, and, and, and it would be empty. And I was mm-hmm. just like, okay. And my friend said, yeah, my father sometimes doesn't have money. You know, that, mean, that meant when he opened up his wallet, it was all the money we had, and he didn't have any. didn't mean he had another bank account somewhere else. That was it. <laughs> that was it. But like, yeah. like you, it, it really uh, it not only tests you it, makes you, it makes you more empathetic. And I think that's why you've done such an outstanding job in the, in the political arena, because you, they say about a statesman, Difference between a politician and a statesman. Politician cares about the next election. Statesman cares about the next generation. Mm. And we need more. I think that's what that's that's why so many people, I guess, love you. I I came back to Brooklyn, New York, and I told people <laughs> I was on the Huckabee Show, and they said, "I love that guy." I went to really? my mother. I said, "Mom, I'm on the Huckabee." You watch this? Yeah, Channel Two Fifty Seven. You have to move things around. I just I couldn't believe it. You are really and I and I and I now it's coming through to me why why that's so. So how'd you get, how'd you jump into politics? Well, I had an interest in it since my childhood and, uh, you know, I was involved in all the student government. But part of my time as a pastor led me to the conclusion that people who were making the decisions about how we live, the politicians, didn't know the real problems. I I became increasingly convinced um, they didn't understand what it was like for people to be hungry, to be poor. Uh, and, and they didn't understand what was going on, even in terms of people whose lives were being shattered by drug addiction, alcoholism, um, spouse abuse. I was seeing all that every week. Like I said, every social pathology, Charles, I could put a name and a face to it. And I would listen to the politicians and their proposed solutions. And I thought, you guys don't know what you're talking about. And I guess it was one of those things that I sort of uh, uh, came to the conclusion if I think I can do better, then why don't I stick my name on the ballot and and go do it? And, and how'd you and do? That's, what was the first thing you ran? What was the first thing you ran for? I ran for U.S. Senate, which sounds like a kind of a bold place to start. But I had been president of the uh, Baptist Convention in in Arkansas, which sounds like maybe a minor thing, but in that state, that means that you were the presiding denominational executive over. Uh, almost half a million people of a state uh, how old of uh, you? three million people. How old I was you? 30, 35 years old. At 35 years old, you're, yeah. in, you're the number one guy <laughs> in an organization for half a million or so people. Yeah. And so it, it gave me a level of notoriety and, and sort of uh, platform that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And I started having people who would say to me, have you ever thought about running for office? Now, they said this without having any knowledge that I ever thought that. And I had people that would say, I really wish you would consider running for office. And it started becoming a, almost a chorus. So I thought maybe they are God's instruments to kind of encourage me to do something that deep down I'd wanted to do. So anyway, that's what I set out to do. I did not win my first election. Most people don't, by the way. Um, but in, this was in 1992. Bill Clinton was elected president. And the lieutenant governor became the governor because Clinton had to vacate the governor's office. Right, right, right. Now there was a special election for lieutenant governor, 
the party came to me not thinking I had a chance to win because Republicans never won in Arkansas at that time, but they needed somebody to sort of take one for the team and said, look, you've just run a statewide campaign. Uh, you know, you have the organization in place. It's a special election. And so I agreed to do it. And surprising, I think, to everyone, I won. And what, uh, what then I was reelected. Why do you think you won? I think it was because my campaign um, tried to speak to what I call real issues of people. And I was running against a person who was Bill Clinton's hand-picked candidate. He had defeated a bunch of other Democrats in the primary. Uh, Harvard-educated attorney, very smart, very successful, but really didn't connect to the ordinary rank-and-file people. Mm -hmm. And because it was a special election, uh, I think a lot of it was the Democrats assumed they would win. How, how could they lose? They always win. And our people went out there and just outworked them. And we didn't have, we had a dime to their dollar. So we didn't have hardly any money to run the, the race. And then when I did get elected, uh, the Democrats were so angry about it. They nailed my door shut at the state Capitol, the door to my office. And it remained nailed shut. I mean, physically nailed with nails on the door. Was this the first time Republican, I, I, I can't see how, yeah. a, how does a Democrat lose the South? It was tough in those days, because, and that's why they were so angry. They couldn't believe it. Um, and, you know, the, the ratio, for example, the House uh, in Arkansas was 89 to 11, Democrat to Republican. The Senate was uh, 31 to 4. There was not a single member of the uh, constitutional officers who was a uh, Republican. Republican. Wow. And there was only one member of the congressional uh, delegation that was a Republican. Everybody was Democrat. 93% of all elected officials in the state were Democrat. So yeah, I wasn't supposed to win, but I did. And then I got reelected the following year. And then two years after that, the governor um, was convicted of whitewater related felonies. They went after Clinton. They didn't get him, but they got the then governor, Jim Guy Tucker. So I was unexpectedly wow. swept into the governor's office in 1996 in the summer you know, and this then reminds, reelected twice. This so, reminds it, me of, yeah. of, the, of, of Esther in the Bible. You just happen to be in the right spot, right? And you just keep, yeah. wow, divine providence keeps moving you in the right spot. It, it truly was just that, just that. Wow. How old are you now, you're senator of a, uh, I'm sorry, you're governor of a state, just a short while ago, you were catching chickens yeah. in 95 degree weather. <laughs> and, and now you're the governor of the state of Arkansas. Yeah. How old are you? 40? Uh, just had just, yes, I was just 40. 40 and, and a Republican. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was bizarre to say the least. Oh, you know, smoke. I never thought I would even set foot on the governor's mansion other than maybe to cut the lawn. <laughs> and there I was living in it. Interestingly, uh, my wife and I lived longer, almost 11 years in the governor's mansion than we've lived any one place in our 46 and a half years of marriage. Um, so it, it's where our, we raised our children, mostly Sarah. She was the youngest and our, our oldest son was in college, but our uh, middle son was in high school and Sarah was just getting into junior high. Um, so it was, you know, quite the experience to, uh, you know, suddenly be thrust into this very highly visible role to uh, lead a state, but it was also, the, it was the best job I ever had. And, Loved and, it. And, 
You were, you were ranked, I think, in 2005 as one of the top five governors or most uh, liked governors in, in the country. Uh, yeah, Time Magazine uh, listed me as one of the top five governors. I always said, gee, were the other four that bad? I didn't, you know, couldn't imagine. <laughs> but it was, uh, you know, I, here's the thing. I think I, I didn't go into it from the same experience nor did I have the same sense of let's do things like they've always been done. I did not want to oil someone else's machinery. And so because of the background that I had, I looked at things differently. Uh, I'll give an example. I, I created something that really preceded the S-chip program for kids who didn't have medical coverage. And here was the problem. People who were poor had Medicaid, which was actually a platinum, is a platinum level medical plan for children. People who were rich, ah, they had plenty of money. They could afford whatever medical care they needed. But there was a huge hole in the middle for the children of working mothers and fathers who made just above the threshold. They didn't qualify for Medicaid, but there was no way they could afford monthly premiums or the health care costs for their kids. They were the ones who were the most vulnerable. And yet they were being penalized for working. If they quit work, they could get Medicaid. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. they couldn't work hard enough. They couldn't get a job that paid them enough for medical care. So we created a program. We called it Our Kids First. And we built a, a medical care program for these children of working parents because their parents nor the children should be penalized because they were working, but they weren't wealthy. And it was wildly successful. Uh, we covered virtually every kid in the state. And it became sort of the, the model for what S-CHIP ended up becoming nationally. Uh, you know, it's always something I'm proud of. And, and you know, if anybody said, well, you expanded government, say whatever you want to. But we looked at a gaping hole in our state and for its children, and we filled it. And for that, I'll never be apologetic. So looking back, looking back on your career, would you say that was one of the highlights? One, one thing oh. you, when you put your head down to, yeah? Absolutely. Because I would have them. Uh, I was standing at a reception once. I was doing a fundraiser for a congressional candidate who was actually a member of Congress. And it was one of the ladies working for the catering service, you know, who was serving and helping out. And when everybody had left and I was getting ready to leave the room to go into the main event, she came over to me. She put her hand in mine. And I, it's, it's emotional even telling this. She looked up at me and tears started coming down her cheeks. And she said, I wanted to thank you for the Our Kids program. She said, I teach school at, in the day and at night I have to do events like this and I'm a single mom. My 12 year old daughter has a congenital heart problem, but because of our kids, she had surgery at Arkansas Children's Hospital and she's gonna be okay. Wow, I mean, at that moment, every political pain I'd ever had was erased. And I remembered why I was doing what I was doing. It was a beautiful moment. Wow, 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 wow. That is absolutely astounding. And it's, so you did great work as, as a governor. You felt that there was more to do and you, and you wanted to run for president? Yeah, I came to the conclusion, again, it was almost like running for governor. I, I thought, you know, I, I think I could do this job better. And I wanted to do it from a practical standpoint. 
we've done a lot to rebuild our road system in the state, revamp our education system. I, I saw government not as a means to power, but I saw it as a as a vehicle to, to really help create an environment where people could succeed. It wasn't that the government was going to give people their success, but government could help create a playing field where they could play to win and they could play toward their success. So, uh, you know, I announced in uh, 2007 that I was going to run for president in the 2008 election. I ended up coming second to John well, McCain in the Republican what, what, primary. What did, what did Janet and the yeah. kids think about that? What did they think when they, that you were run? Do they think they, you're crazy? It's a cesspool out there. Politics on the national level, <laughs> they play for keeps. Well, a, honestly, the national level in some ways was less brutal than the uh, state of play in Arkansas politics as a Republican. It was it was vicious. I, I can't tell you how many times I'd go somewhere and people wouldn't shake my hand because I was a Republican. Um, it, it was it was pretty rough. So, so, so I think I was the, better than prepared. You're more than half the state hating you. Yeah, <laughs> you'd walk into some place and you know half the people would smile and look at you, and the other half would sneer and hiss. And it's like, oh boy. So you get used to it, and you. But how does that weigh? How does that weigh in your family? Right? They didn't. They didn't opt in for this. It's you who's the government. Well, how but did they, they did. I, I, you know, I would never have done it had they not said that they were 100% behind it. And it's part of the reason that I'm so proud of the fact because you see politicians whose kids turn on them. They hate politics. They they turn up rejecting everything you know that their parents stood for. Um, you know, my daughter's the famous of most famous of my three, pretty well known for what she's done as press secretary to the you president. Know, by the way, when I watch her, when I watched her, I, I, I could first of all, you just sit with your mouth open because here you have the Washington Press Corps are the alpha people of the alpha <laughs> industry. Yeah. And there she is on the stage. And it was like Wonder Woman just with her magic bracelets, just knocking away bullets. <laughs> and they came one after the other. And. What I loved about her, what I loved about Sarah, is that she isolated the question and then just started to dissect it with the facts. If it came up more than once yeah. or twice, she said, enough, let's move on to something. It was brilliant. Yeah. It was just well, amazing. She grew up in that environment. She saw it all firsthand. So none of this was a big shock to her. And she was prepared. And my other two uh, children, both boys, older than Sarah, she's the youngest. You know, they're they're all interested in politics, but they're all solid conservative, uh, pro-life, you know, they, uh, they didn't end up hating me and hating everything I stood for. And that for me is the greatest achievement of all. When people say, what's the greatest accomplishment you had as governor or whatever, I can point to some policy things, but the greatest is, uh, that my family survived it and came out on the other side in good shape. And I, I'll never forget my daughter was being interviewed back when I was running for president. She was I guess, I guess she was just out of college. And a reporter said, you know, um, was it hard growing up as the child and the daughter of a governor? Uh, a lot of pressure and everything was amplified because, you know, seeing your name in the paper when you're a high school sophomore is not fun. Um, and she said, you know, it was tough and there were some really rough moments. And she said, but, you know, we got to do a lot of cool stuff and meet some great people that we never would have ever been able to meet had it not been for that. So in the end, it turned out okay. And that was her perspective. And I was so thrilled when I read that and I thought, 
gosh, I, I'm glad that that was the way she looked at it, that, yeah, there were some pretty painful moments, but there was also some spectacular moments that she would never have had had her dad not been the governor. Well, that, that is a cool thing. There's no question. You find being a man of faith in your family, of, of one of faith, you take your religion seriously, you take the Bible seriously, you take God seriously. How difficult was it for you to go into, quote unquote, a secular world in the, in, in the world of politics where that is, when you were running, it wasn't looked on as a positive. That was a negative. Oh, very much, yeah. I, I think people expect me to say it was much harder, but, but I've always said it's actually much easier. And, and here's what I mean by that, Charles. Um, some people every day have to sort of wake up and decide what they're going to believe that day. And they're constantly checking a poll or seeing what the latest trend is. You know, I didn't have to do that. I knew what I believed. I was comfortable in it. I could defend it and articulate it. And if people rejected it, then I still believed it. And so I, I didn't wake up every day wringing my hands and stressing as to what my uh, beliefs were going to be on that given day. I your think it was your moral a, a compass, grounding influence. Your moral compass was always pointing true north. You never had to make any of those tough decisions because they weren't no. tough. They were, they, were, they, were, they were the right decisions that you spent 50 years developing and, and, and cultivating and learning about and experiencing. So you lost the election. Made a big difference. Yeah. In 08, 07, 08, you, you bow out early on because yep. it's, it's too... How difficult is it running a national campaign? Uh, it's uh, it's very challenging. It's uh, all consuming. Running for president, especially in the early stages, is really like running for governor in about uh, eight or nine states, because that's where the election is going to be decided. You mm -hmm. know, you, you you may run raise money nationally, but you're actually running in a handful of states that are the early primary states. And so the fact is that if you can uh, win in those states, you go on. If you can't, you're over. Um, but it was, it was an exhilarating experience. I mean, and, and it was not lost on me that here I am, um, uh, this kid that once caught chickens running for president of the United States and standing you, on the debate you, stage with somebody who was going to be president. Governor, did you wake up some morning to say, go into the, after your shower, you look in the mirror and say, I, I really can't believe this. <laughs> oh, every day, every day, still do, still do. To sleep in the governor's mansion, to, to run for the presidency, uh, you see, do you sometimes wake up and see yourself as 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 that eight year old kid asking for that <laughs> guitar? Oh, uh, more often than you can imagine, because yeah. I, I think it's important to look back and to say you know, on days that I'm thinking, well, I haven't done much, and you know, I could have done better, I should have, and I stop and I say, you know what? Uh, given the circumstances with which I started. Life's been pretty doggone good. So, so you, you you bow out, and then where do you go? You went to uh, to Fox at that time, right? Yeah. Fox hired me to uh, do political commentary and to host a television show there, which I did. How'd you enjoy uh, that? How'd you like that? I loved it. I had a great time doing the show. In fact, uh, you know, had I not decided to run again in 2016, I probably would have stayed there and done it indefinitely. But in a way, it worked out better because... Uh, as much as I love the show at Fox, the show that I'm doing for TBN is the dream show. It's the one that I really wanted to do all along. And TBN has given me the resources to do a show that I think 10 times better than the show that I did at Fox. Better production, uh, 
our studio and theaters. You've been there. You know it's fantastic. It's well, just I, I just love the fact you walked in. I was outside the green room, and there is a beautiful <laughs> display of guitars in a circle. This is a very <laughs> hip place. By the way, it's a beautiful place. It really is beautiful. It is. It, it's a great place and a great team of people. Um, so, you know, I, I have no complaints. It's uh, It's been a great ride for me. It really has. And I hope to continue to do the television show for a long time. And and the with because I want to tell you something. You feel well. First of all, you feel happy. I, I you know just meeting you when you've met me for the first time. It's like you you tell like Warren Buffett says you tap dance to work. Right? You you really feel good about that. <laughs> I love that. that. It's great. Yeah, tap, tap dance. So if you never can, if you don't tap dance to work, you're in the wrong job, right? So mm, you got to love great. what you do. That's yeah. the way I feel. The day I don't tap dance is the day I switch professions. I, I love I love what I do. I love getting up every day and and writing about investing and helping so many subscribers and getting to meet great people like you. It's just exciting. So it, to me, and, and most importantly, working, working around a great group of people, right? If you have great people that you want to work with, that you go to dinner with every night, tell me a happier day, right? That, I, I think that's an absolutely wonderful way to live life. I truly do. Yeah. And if you help people along the way, it's, it's just a blessing, just a thing. So you, why, why did you try to go again in 16? You saw how that was a crowded field. Yeah. Oh. You know, after uh, eight years of President Obama, I, I really thought that maybe the country was ready for someone who was a pragmatist. Um, I'm, I'm certainly ideological. I'm not pretending that I'm not. I'm, I'm very conservative and have very strong convictions. But as a governor and really politically, I'm more the pragmatist. I'm, I'm how do we get things done? And quite frankly, much to my surprise, I found out that in 2016, people were not looking for a pragmatist. They looked for a fighter. And by fighter, they didn't mean somebody who fought his way through the political system. They wanted somebody just with bare knuckles to go out there and duke it out with the, the establishment. Yeah. And that's part of the reason Donald Trump was so successful is that he was um, unapologetic, unafraid, unabashed, uh, recklessly candid about what he believed. And uh, plus the media couldn't take their eyes off of him. There was no way that any of the rest of us were going to win that primary, in part because uh, when, once Donald Trump entered the arena, uh, he, I mean, he sucked all the oxygen out of the room. But interestingly, the very people who hate him now made him in 2016. Every speech he gave, they covered the whole thing. Right. And if I, one I, of us, yeah. As soon as that, and if, if he saw that red light go on at everything, he just kept going. How many millions? Yeah. He was so smart. He knew that there was millions of dollars that he didn't have to spend for yeah. exposure. You couldn't get that. No, and, and if they did come to me for a question or even an interview on one of the news channels, they never said, so Huckabee, what is your plan for rebuilding America's infrastructure? My question always would be posed this way. So today in New Hampshire, here's what Donald Trump said. They'd play the tape. What do you think about what he said? And I'd sometimes say, why don't you ask me what I'm thinking? All you're asking me is to react to somebody else. So it, it, was, uh, it was cooked before it ever you know, got to the kitchen. So when did you, you drop out? Pretty early on, right? And, uh, yeah, after Iowa, Iowa, I realized I was not going to be able to, you know, before I won Iowa in 2008, and then I carried uh, a whole bunch of states on Super Tuesday. And as I say, I came in second to John McCain. Uh, you know, but at that point, the press decided that I couldn't win, and they pretty much wrote me off. And in 2016, I realized that uh, 
this this was not going to end in a Huckabee victory because there were so many people on the stage. So many were out raising me financially. And I, I could see Donald Trump was he was scratching where people were itching. And nice, he was gonna nice. he was gonna be the nominee. And so well, I got behind him. You you got behind him pretty early before yeah. I, I I think uh, As I, I tell people all the time, he was not my first choice, but he was my second choice. I was my first choice. <laughs> and and so, so that brings us to now. How, your story, I love. It's just really the American story. It's the American dream. You worked your way up. No one gave you anything. You got into government. You gave back service. You made the world a better place. As we call tikkun olam, which means you made the world better much better than, than, than it was a, a few before Huckabee. So my question is this now, how come this younger generation who is blessed with so much, how come they're so angry, they're so indifferent, they, they believe that our capitalist way, our democracy uh, is, is on the wrong track? Where did they go, where did they go off the track so badly? I would attribute it to three things. One, they did not grow up with the spiritual base of understanding that they are individuals and that God made them to be individuals. So they grow up with this sense of groupthink, that they're a part of a, an identity. Their identity is either their gender, their race, uh, their economic status, their political leanings. And that's unfortunate because to me, the greatest gift of America is the gift that I'm an individual and that I am ultimately responsible to God, to myself, and to others for the life that I live. And when people say, oh, I can't help what I am because I'm male, I'm black, I'm Asian, I'm, uh, you know, I'm transgender, whatever the excuse can be, then we never have to accept responsibility. That's one thing. Second thing, kids, I think, did not grow up being educated. They grew up being indoctrinated by an education system that is out of control and that at its core hates America. Uh, and that's a bold statement. But when kids don't grow up believing that Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and George Washington were good guys and that they instead were imperialist and racist and horrible people, well, no wonder they hate this country. The they 16, hate the people 19, that started it. The 1619 yeah. Project, which Absolutely. is- Absolutely. It's tragic. And I think the third reason is that they had parents who indulged them rather than disciplined them and did not insist upon their excellence and bailed them out. And if the kid got in trouble at school, it was a teacher's uh, fault. It was a teacher's, it was a fault. teacher's fault. Right. I mean, I grew up as probably you did, Charles, when if I got in trouble at school, the one thing I said, please don't tell my parents, do whatever <laughs> you got to do to me here. Do not tell my parents because the trouble I'm in there is way worse than anything you can the, do. The worst words you ever wanted to hear is bring your parents to school. Oh. And to think oh. my father would have to take off from work to come to school, please do whatever you'd like now. Corporal punishment's fine. Just don't yeah. tell my parents. <laughs> I, I absolutely. And, and kids today have such an indulgent sort of attitude. And, they, and, and I don't mean to overgeneralize. That's not fair to a generation of people. But they don't have this sense in which they are responsible and it is someone else's fault. You know, I, like I say, you and I grew up in, in much the same way, but I didn't get to go to school and say, well, I'm poor, therefore I can't learn. That was not an option. I'm poor, therefore I better learn. 
Maybe I have to work harder at it, but I better come out with something here. You know, that's when my kids were going to school. They were younger now, now they were older. Uh, and, and there was a movement about 10 years ago where give every kid a, a give every kid an award, give everyone a trophy, because everyone is special. <laughs> and they yeah. did that. You know, every kid at graduation got yeah. an award. And the kids that were so <laughs> smart on their own, they figured out, oh, they got the baloney award. We got the real <laughs> award. So yeah. you try to create this even playing field, or so you thought, and you just bred more contempt for this total way of everyone's a winner. No, they got to be a loser somewhere. Yeah. That just toughens you up. It does. You know, had I grown up in this world of everybody gets a trophy, I would never have ended up doing what I did. And part of it was because I've realized early on I was not a great athlete. I mean, I tried. I played baseball and football. But, you know, at a young age, I figured out I'm not getting a trophy. I'm never going to get a trophy. So I turned my attention to music and to student government. And if I hadn't, have, I'd have been a mediocre guy in everything rather than to have excelled in a few things, the things that I was really designed and equipped for. That's where I think we're failing kids. And if they don't understand that my even if I fail at something, it leads me to either look for something I can do or it leads me to discipline and work harder at the things that I want to do. Yeah, no, I love it. You know, so, so how do we change this? This seems, you, you, you identify three real difficult barriers that we, for whatever reason, that generation is behind. How do we get them over that? How do we change this whole mindset? Well, I think in the educational realm, We've got to have a, a virtual revolution in our education system. How, how does First, that happen? How does that empower happen? Empower parents to choose schools for their kids rather than have the government do it. Uh, I, you know, I, I've become increasingly a strong advocate for school choice because a, a parent shouldn't be forced to send his or her child to a not just a failing school academically, but to a school that will indoctrinate that child to hate everything his or her parents stand for. A parent ought to be able to say, I want to send my child to a religious school and be able to do that or to a maybe non-religious but private school, but where there's a focus on the arts that the child is interested in. And if they want to send their child to a public school, they should have that option, too. And the public schools ought to be uh, worth sending your child to. But empower parents, which empowers the children uh, and make that available for everyone. That's, to me, one of the most important things we could do. Um, you know, a lot of parents don't have a choice. They send their kid to the only school that they the have as an option. Yeah. And yeah. when their kids turn out to be um, angry little uh, zealots, what, what are the parents supposed to say about it? Yeah. The governor, I want to thank you so much for your time, but I want to ask you one last question. Okay. Huckabee <laughs> 2024, any shape, form, <laughs> anywhere, anywhere. No. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I've, I've, Reach for the uh, the ring twice, and uh, three, you times know, is, three times is a charm. You know that, right? Well, you know, I don't want to be that guy that just uh, refuses to leave the stage. I, I want to help other people. My my pack this year, for example, will give over two and a half million dollars directly to candidates. I want to help those people who were me thirty years ago, and you know, it's not that I wouldn't love the opportunity in some ways. But I realize that there's other people whose time is yet to come. And I'm content being a part of the process from where I am. Um, and, you know, as I tell people, I've, I've gone out there twice and 
twice the people said we want someone else. So I'm going to let them go ahead and go for someone else in 2024. Do you have a lot of folks, by the way, a lot of young politicians who come to Governor Huckabee to, to ask for guidance, direction, support, ideas, insights? Sure, they do. And it's always uh, kind of gratifying that somebody would think that I had something to offer to them. And I'll tell you what, I there's two things I tell every single candidate. The first is, how does your family feel about it? And if they say, well, they're not really for it, but they'll come around, I'll say, uh-uh. Don't run until they have come around. Do not put them through this unless they're 100% with you. If they're not with you, go help somebody else. But until they're as confident of doing this as you, forget about it. And the second thing I tell them is this. If you're going to run for office, don't tell me you're just going to run one time because I know you're going to win. You, you know you're going to win, but you might not. Learn from not winning and go back and be the better candidate and win the second or the third time. And I said, if you're only going to run one time and your attitude is, if I don't win, I'll quit forever. Don't waste everybody's money and time. Don't even bother. Only if you're willing to commit to this for the long haul, should you even do it. And when you say long haul, you're talking about what you did. You were in government for what, 11 years, 12 years as, as governor? Well, longer than that. Three years as lieutenant, lieutenant. governor, uh, almost 11 years as governor, and then, of course, running for president twice. And, and I'm still in it to some degree. I mean, by helping other candidates and, you know, being an ongoing commentator and facilitator. Uh, but as an actual public servant, uh, you know, a little over 14 years. And uh, it would have been longer than that had people elected me president twice. <laughs> oh, yeah. Governor, I have a really last important question for you. My daughter and my two grandchildren and my son-in-law live in Israel. I haven't seen them for a long while because mm. they've been with Corona. When sure. are we going to be able to go back to Israel? I hope soon. I had four trips this year alone that all had to be canceled. Uh, and I have one in February that I'm supposed to be taking. And I'm hoping by then uh, things will open up. I, it really needs to. And I, I, I don't even have family there like you do. You really do need to be able to see oh, them. And I hope it's soon. I truly look, do. Thank God for FaceTime, but it's, mm. it's my, my granddaughter's growing up. My grandson's growing up. And, uh, I think they'll only think of me as a small image on a screen for, <laughs> for, for the rest. But what, you, what kind of mission you run missions or, or tour groups? Uh, I do. You know, I'm there usually a couple of times a year taking large groups of people of four or five hundred people. And then Whoa. I go other times either for speaking engagements or maybe for media uh, uh, reasons and doing tapings and documentaries. So uh, various things. But, you know, it's not uncommon for me to be there four or five times a year. Wow. And now with this Abraham's Accord, Abraham Accords, it's just absolutely amazing. Just uh, yeah. we're living in really amazing times. That's a whoever thought of Israel having relations with mm. two Arab countries. OK, yeah. Jordan and Egypt, <laughs> cold peace, now normalized relations with two others. And I, I, I don't know, as I saw a room, I wasn't sure with Sudan is going to be coming to the table very soon. I think we're going to see a rapidly growing number of Arab and Muslim nations creating normal relations with Israel because they, they've come to realize Israel is never going to invade their country. Israel doesn't want anything they have. They just want the land God gave them and he gave it to them. And they want to be left alone and live in peace and freedom. That's it. And I think increasingly you're going to see other nations come to, to realize that the common enemy that all these 
uh, Arab nations have is not Israel, it's Iran and the Shiites uh, who will kill them if they get the opportunity. You know, it's just amazing. It's just really can't see, it, you ha it has to be divine providence. There's nothing else mm -hmm. to it that yeah. the Iran agreement that President Obama was pushing through really opened the doors to all this happening. It did. It's just, yeah. it, it's one of those things in history. We'll look back years from now, not even years, but everything started to line up after how, how terrible that deal was and how ridiculous it was. And then President Trump came in and the Arab nations started saying, oh my gosh, this mm -hmm. cannot happen. We're, we're, we're in trouble. It's, it's a lot like the story of Joseph and uh -huh. yeah. Genesis chapter 50, when, when Joseph's brothers were afraid he would have them all killed because of what they did to him. And he made the comment, it's such a powerful one. He said, what you intended for harm has turned out for good and it saved the nation of Israel. And right. I think sometimes what was intended uh, to, to boost Iran actually ended up being their undoing. And it has not only given Israel a new place, but new peace partners. Uh, again, only God could orchestrate something of that magnitude. And just the, how much prosperity it's gonna to bring to the region. Poverty is, the, is yeah. the second biggest challenge that they have. And and the and look at where it all coincides, the falling oil prices, the, the new rise in electric vehicles, causing the Arab nations to start figuring out, hey, our economies are not gonna survive. Let's figure out another way to do this. And now with all the money that's gonna be plowing into startups and, and technology in Israel, it's exciting time to be alive. It really it is. is an exciting time. Yes, all it right. is. Governor, God bless you. Keep doing what you're doing. I'm telling you, I am so, I this, it felt, I don't know, we spoke for an hour and 10 minutes. I feel like it was a 50. <laughs> By the way, if I, you, you're in Tennessee or you're in Arkansas now? Uh, I'm in Florida right now, actually. Yeah. So, but where do you live for the, sh you, for the, you just come into for the show for that one or two I days? Do. I do. I live in uh, the panhandle of Florida. I go to Nashville every week to do my television show. We still have uh, a little place in Arkansas that we go to so we can see our grandkids and our friends. But we uh, moved to Florida about 10 years ago. Wow. If, if you ever come after this Corona thing to New York, I will take you to the best kosher restaurant for steak <laughs> or anything you'd like. I, I'd love to be... I like to hang with a guy like you. Like, just hang <laughs> out. We don't. I have what I learned. I learned so much, and you're such a positive inspiration. It's just absolutely because sometimes I say these things, and people look at me, and goes, ah, give it. I said maybe they're right, but you know there is hope. It, it, it's it's a great country, and you just keep hearing all these negative things, and enough already. Just enough. You know, well, I think Benj I appreciate it. But Ben Shapiro. I, th I think, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say Shapiro. how much I've enjoyed being with you. It's been oh, such lovely. a pleasure. Well, yeah. ben, ben Shapiro said, I heard this on one, I don't think I'm getting it exact, but I just started laughing when he said, he goes, yeah. American kids uh, woke up on third base and they think they hit a triple. <laughs> <laughs> well said. <laughs> well said.